Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Neil Fletcher. And before we get to that, if you are interested in learning to sail, I have a series of audio lessons available for you at the website, medsailor.com. I have eight sample lessons that you can take advantage of if you'd like by signing up for the email list. So there's eight of the 16 of the first series of lessons on learning to sail for the ASA 101 exam, the basic keelboat certification. That series of lessons is a total of 16 lessons long, and I give you half of it for free to see if you like my teaching style. And hopefully if you do, you'll go and buy the series of lessons from me. All right, that advertisement out of the way. I haven't done podcasts this summer like I'd hoped to because I'm in the midst of doing an addition to my summer home. We've pretty much got it fully framed up right now, and we're coming into the hunting season. And hopefully I will find an elk out there on our property that I'll be able to put in the freezer for the winter. I shot an elk two years ago, and we've pretty much taken care of all that meat in the family. Just had one of the last elk steaks last week. Elk is a wonderful meat, if you ever have a chance to eat it. It's wonderful, hormone-free, antibiotic-free, the most natural meat you can possibly get is wild game. So I'm hoping to get another elk this year. I have an opportunity to take both a bull and a cow on our property, or the area around our property, on the national forest that surrounds our property in the Uinta Mountains. So I'm hoping to do that. So, not much else to say. been very busy this summer. And with that out of the way, let's get on to the second part of my interview with Neil Fletcher about our adventures sailing in the Swedish archipelago this last summer. That's right. Now, I, that, that island or that group of islands to me was one of the most memorable spots on the entire trip because it felt like you were really out on the edge. You felt like uh, you were a long ways away from, from anywhere. It was windswept, and the, the Swedish sailors that were there, they helped us a lot. I mean, we, we were sort of, you know, fumbling along, and I always say you always provide your fair share of entertainment wherever you go. And so we provided them with a little bit of entertainment because we didn't know what we were doing. And they helped us quite a bit. Um, they took our bow lines because it was still quite a, quite a jump from the bow of your boat to the, uh, to the rocks. And even then you could easily have fallen right into the water or slipped in the water. But they helped us a lot. But when we walked around that island, I found that particularly appealing. And we, we ran into a family of... Uh, two or three women and their children that were there for a week. And you took a picture of them. Do you remember that? Yes, yes, I do. I mean, what was interesting, apart from the, the desolate, windswept nature of the island, is that there were, I think it was originally a customs 
house or a place that you would first check in if you were bringing goods from another country into Sweden. So there was sort of a couple of government buildings. There was a rather impressive lighthouse and there were just two or three other private buildings, one of which uh, was a sort of a dormitory where people would will come for the summer, which you can book. And the, the family we met was three separate families who'd come together. The, the husbands weren't there, but the wives were there with the children. So there were three ladies and I think probably about eight or nine children. And they come every year, they told us, to detox. That was exactly the word that they used, detox, um, because there's no electricity, there's no running water. So um, what they do is they, you know, the light, they, they cook everything on, um, on with propane and the lights is oil lamps. And um, there is one water supply. There's a system with a green pump in the middle of the island. And this is an island that you can walk from one side to the other in, you know, 10 minutes. And so everyone who is there for the summer uses this one communal pump to pump their water up. So it was really this sense of getting back to nature. And the, the Swedes really like to do that. I think they think there's an inherent virtue in living a simple life. And so uh, but I could see the appeal. But uh, as you said, you really do feel that you're out there because if we had continued east from Hovudskar, our next stop would have been Estonia. So it's really uh, it's the last post. It's the last post of, of the uh, eastern archipelago. Now the next morning we got a rude awakening, though. Yes, we certainly did. I think it was about six thirty or seven, and there was a, a gentle bump. And well, I was just sort of processing what that was. Then there was a hard bump immediately afterwards. And um, you woke up, and I woke up at the same time. You immediately um, put the uh, started the engine because we it was obvious what had happened. The wind had shifted. And now we were being blown towards the rocks. Uh, and although we had the stern anchor out, uh, out it, the wind had shifted sort of slightly more onto the beam. So the boat was sort of yawing across a little bit. And I think probably the, the, the anchor may have moved a little bit as well. But it wasn't cat catastrophic. It wasn't uh, the iceberg hitting a the Titanic hitting an iceberg. You know, I jumped off, quickly got the pitons out with the help of our neighbor. And what was interesting is that when we'd moored the night before, there were three three boats next to us and when we woke up there was only one next to us and two, the other two had crossed the bay and they were now sharing the um the swedish cruising club buoy that we'd that we'd seen on our way in so clearly that was that's a little local knowledge for you they could see the way the wind was blowing literally and figuratively and they made adjustments accordingly so it, and that would be my takeaway there unless you're super comfortable if any of our listeners go there to Huvudskar and they are unless they're super comfortable and experienced doing bows to mooring, I would take advantage of that mooring boy in the middle of the, because it's, you know, it's a, it'll be a two minute row and you're in your dinghy or with the outboard, if you want to get onto the land. But then again, you won't have to worry about leaving in a hurry at 7am, which is what we did. We, there was no morning ablutions. There was no morning coffee. We just pulled up the anchor and we, we set sail to our next destination. Which was what? Which was um, Malmakavan. Um, again, having spent the night on in a nature harbour, I wanted to go back to a marina. Um, not that there's anything wrong with roughing it, but um, as I said, the Malmakavan I'd been recommended to by a, a British sailor who I'd met on my first day in Stockholm, who has been going there with his wife to the archipelago for 14 years. And Malmakavan is about um, 14 nautical miles northeast of Huvudskar, up a small inlet, and um, it's a, a, a lovely, compact little place. 
Um, when we arrived, we had a little bit of drama when we arrived because there was a, a, a rainstorm that hit us, which we found quite common. We would, as you probably recall, there would be a 30 or a 45 minute rainstorm and then the sun would come out and it would be beautiful and calm for the rest of the day. Um, so that spot probably holds about 30 boats, I would think. And there's a, a nice little uh, restaurant serving excellent food there. And there is also a terrific sauna. If you walk about five minutes from the uh, marina, you up a little hill past uh, these hedgerows bursting with summer flowers. Right at the end, you'll find a little room, a laundry hut where you can do your laundry. And just to the right of that, there is a sauna, a wood fired sauna, which you can uh, book with the harbour master. So you and I, Franz, took advantage of that. Um, and then when you come out the sauna, you can have a, uh, a cold shower. But what I discovered on a subsequent visit with my family is just around the corner from there, perhaps another 200 meters, there's a lake, a beautiful, calm and temperate lake that you can just jump in and cool off for half an hour, an hour. It's not freezing cold. So it's uh, that's a very pleasant spot as well for anyone who wants to visit that part of the world. So the next morning after we were there, you decided to take a yoga class, as I recall. And I went on a long walk. And, uh, and, and I ran across, and I haven't seen this in the States, but on my walk, and I don't even know if I mentioned this to you, Neil, but, but I'm, I, just, I, mean, I just basically set my clock for about an hour and walk in one direction, then in an hour turn around and come back. So I had about a two-hour walk. And I came across a yard which had a little um, robotic lawnmower. And this thing would roll across the lawn. It was fairly small. It was electric-powered. It would roll across the lawn, bump into something, back up, go forward again, bump into something, back up, and go until, until it would basically, in a random pattern, eventually mow the entire lawn. <laughs> I've never seen that in the States yet. But I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, you didn't you didn't mention that to me, but you know it doesn't surprise me because the Swedes really they believe in in mechanization if they can possibly do it. It's a very do it yourself country, so it's not unusual for instance for fuel docks to be kind of in the middle of nowhere. The government will have put them there and there won't be any um attendant. You have to pay with a credit card with a chip and pin number. So, um, which we can also talk about, that's uh, something that I had been told that I really needed. And most of the time, actually, I didn't because most of the places I went, um, you, there's always someone there to help you and to, if, if, you, if you don't have a chip and pin card. But, yeah, they're very much an automated people. Um, and, you know, you can see that without, without good engineering, that country would not be functional because so much of it is an archipelago, not just the archipelago archipelago, but Stockholm is an archipelago. It's a series of islands and rocks separated by water, and they've made it work through the clever application of technology and building and engineering. I mean, the amount of lifting bridges and turning bridges and uh, solutions that they have to getting across the water is really very impressive. And in fact, after I'd put the boat away, I was looking at the, a bus route to get me back to the town of Natalia, where I was going to be picked up by a friend of mine, and I could see that I had to cross two bodies of water on this bus and the app wasn't telling me how this was going to happen. So I was a little confused. And then the, what the happens is the bus pulls right up to the edge of the water and there is a ferry there um, which runs on cables. And the bus pulls onto the yellow ferry 
and the ferry goes across the lake on a cable and actually it's smoother no matter how much the wind is blowing it's smoother going across the water on a ferry than it is on the roads and that's just how well the swedes have engineered everything all right so then we went to smal right so it's spelt s m a d a l a r o now, I believe it's pronounced Smadalareux, and what it means is small Dalaro. And just around the corner, there is a bigger town called Dalaro, which where I'd spent, I, th- I visited that three times over the summer because they had a wonderful internet cafe with a great bakery, and we made some really good friends there as well. But just around the corner on the other side is small Dalaro, or Smadalareux, and we'd read about that in the pilot guide um, and it sounded absolutely delightful because it, it was only accessible through a small cut of, that had been blasted through by the Swedish government. I think the clearance was about seven feet below our keel and maybe 15 feet left to right, uh, port to starboard. But you enter there and what is essentially a lake with a jetty at the end and some beautiful landscaping leading up to this very grand hotel at the top where they have a beautiful terrace. They have live music in the summer. Um, and it's a very popular spot with good reason because at the end of the jetty, there is a, a brand spanking new bathroom facility with a gorgeous sauna with floor to ceiling windows. So you hop in the sauna and, and soak away the pains of the day. And then you come out, you jump off the jetty into the water, cool down, climb back in the sauna and start all over again. And so it's, and this is a sort of, the English have a word which you're probably familiar with, glamping, which is glamorous camping. Well, this is sort of glam sailing as far as I was concerned, <laughs> you know, but without uh, the requisite price tag. I mean, I know if you want to go in the French Riviera, you know, or Puerto Banus in Marbella, it's glamorous as well, but you'll pay a price accordingly. But the 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 uh, the fee at Smadalaro was really no more than it was anywhere else. I think it was again pegged at forty dollars. But it was just a, it just felt like a gorgeous little resort in Stockholm's backyard. Um, and for the evening for the concert that was there when we were there, so there was a a, a, a a wave of beautiful people, beautiful, young, attractive Swedes who decamped there for the evening from Stockholm in their convertible BMWs, drank some wine, saw the concert and then drove back to Stockholm. So it has very much a feeling of a glamorous resort without a hefty price tag. Right. And as I recall, we watched a soccer match there, too, didn't we? Yes, well, the European Championships were on during that time, the, um, and so I think we saw the uh, the Wales game. I forget who they were playing. I think they got beaten, but um, it was the yeah Portugal against Wales, I believe. So it was um, it was there was that going on as well, which made it all very exciting. All right, and then the next day we went with a fairly short hop. It wasn't very far down to Dalaro because you needed to get your your newspaper out, and you needed to get to. Uh, an internet cafe and do some work. So you basically uh, told me, Franz, you're on your own. I got to go do some work. And so you went and did some work at a coffee shop, and I went and tried to find a liquor store and ended up uh, (laughs) catching a bus for about a half an hour to get to a town big enough that had a liquor store in it. So (laughs) it was a delightful little town, but I couldn't believe in a town that size that that there was no liquor store and I thought and I live in Utah and and it's a lot easier to find a bottle of alcohol in Utah than it is in Sweden 
Yes, that's right. But um, they, the Eka store there, the, uh, the the grocery store, they do advertise that they are a an agent for System Balajet. So you can actually go online, pay for liquor if you know you're going to a place that's a little bit out in the uh, 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 you know, uh, let's say a little place out of the way. And the liquor will be there or the wine will be there when you arrive. Um, we hadn't really planned ahead that much. And, oh. uh, you know, and getting on the bus is a pleasant enough experience. So it, I think, and as I recall, you came back with a very nice supply of vodka and gin, which uh, thanks, Franz, because there's still some of that left ready for <laughs> next year's sale. Okay, good. That's good to know. I thought that would have been gone a week after I got I left. So that's... <laughs> All right, so you got your newspaper edition out. Now, talk to us a little bit about being a uh, a digital nomad like you were this summer. Was it uh, was it fairly easy? You've got an assistant that helps you back in the states, but for the most part, you were able to 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 do your work. Yes, well, as long as I'm handling just the production, which is the gathering of information, the choosing of pictures and headlines, the uh, the actual physical part of putting together the newspaper, you know, it's all done on, it's been done on laptop, desktop publishing for probably close to 30 years now in one form or another. And you send your digital files as PDFs to your printer. So that's really how it works. So it's not uh, or your printing facility, wherever that is around the world. So that part of it is really straightforward as long as you've got an internet connection. The, the more complicated part of running my business is the day-to-day interaction with people for who, from whom we're taking orders. But I have an assistant, a full-time assistant, who works and lives in, uh, here in Southern California. And she had to put in some extra longer hours, which I compensated her for. But uh, it seemed to work fairly flawlessly. I mean, every now and then you'll have something that, requires a piece of paper that needs to be looked up because you haven't digitized everything. But my response pretty much is, you know, this can wait. We're not talking about um, splitting the atom here or, you know, if a client can't, if the client is is just going to have to wait for something to be clarified for four weeks until I come back, then the client's going to have to wait. It's not the end of the world. Um, and so, you know, we didn't really have any any major issues. We had a couple of small little niggling issues that I had to deal with when I got back. But really, I, the way that it works, I, my, my, my assistant was very nervous about it. I really wasn't so nervous. And for 10 weeks away, it was really pretty seamless. But that's the benefits of modern technology. I could Let me put it this way, Franz. I could never have done this 15 years ago. It would have been impossible. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Now, then we went from Dalaro to Biscopson for a night. Right. And you know what? My, I'm going blank on Biscopson for some reason. Okay. So the actual harbour is called Coxviken, but Biscopson, again, it's a little mini archipelago of its own. Um, it's sort of four or five islands with a, with a very serene little nature harbour right in the middle. And essentially you approach it from the northeast side um, and then you turn right and there are, um, again, it's the, the typical topography of the granite rocks only this time the island is quite high for its size it's a small little island but the rocks probably go up 70 or 100 feet so if you scramble up after you've moored then you've got a really beautiful view of the of the archipelago around you all right now i now you've jogged my memory enough and that one we came in and bow tied again on that one as well that's right we bow tied again there was a um, a swedish family right next to us who helped us tie to the rocks 
Um, and um, you will recall that on the other side of the little cove that we were tucked away in, which was probably 75 meters or 100 meters wide, mm -hmm. there was a little jetty with an outhouse where you could go and do your ablutions. Um, and what happened to me, in point of fact, we had a, uh, I think it started to rain and then the rain died away and it was a beautiful calm evening with a rainbow. We had a couple of um, cocktails and then some dinner in the cockpit. And then I loved the setting so much that I took the rowboat out to the mouth of the Coxvican anchorage just so I could see the sunset. And of course, the sun never really sets that just dips below the horizon for a few hours and comes up again. But it was just so peaceful, so calm. And I just laid down in the in the dinghy and I actually fell asleep. Funnily enough. <laughs> but um, instead of waking up, you know, in Denmark, which <laughs> could have happened, um, the boat just drifted gently uh, inland. And I just came to nestle against one of these sort of submerged rocks. And it just sort of woke me with a very gentle start. And I thought, oh, OK time to head back to the boat and I think it was close to midnight and it still wasn't quite dark the sky was just a gorgeous shade of royal blue and the view in front of me was the, was the sky and a few clouds scudding by and it was just it was a very peaceful zen moment so I um I was very thankful that I was alive and exactly where I was at that moment and then we went from tranquility to um, party central didn't we that's exactly right, yes. You're talking, of course, about the island of Sandham. Sandham is sort of the Monte Carlo, if you like, of, of the archipelago. They don't have a, a casino there, but it's been a very busy island for probably a century. Uh, Well-heeled, well rich Stockholmers have, have used it as a, re, as a resort town, and it's dominated by a large red hotel right on the waterfront. So... Um, come the summer months, the place is full of beautiful people arriving in big yachts there. Um, the one time when I think when you and I were there, there was a, a boat that wouldn't, a gin palace that would not have been out of place in Monte Carlo or Morbea. There was a, uh, a helicopter on top ferrying people back and forth. The place has its own radio station that opens up for two months during the summer. You were interviewed by it, weren't you? Yes, I was. I mean, as you know, Franz, I'm someone who can never walk past a microphone without starting talking into it, as you know. Um, <laughs> and it was, uh, I think I was, I'd been out um, just using the sauna or something or shower in the morning, and there was a fellow talking away, nattering away, and I walked up and sort of looked in his window, and he invited me to come in, and I explained that I was American. Of course, Swedes are wonderfully bilingual, and I just told him he was fascinated by the story of the boat, what I was doing here, and I guess it's quite an unusual story, you know, Californian-based Brit on a, on a boat he's never been on before, sailing in the archipelago. So I spent about 10 minutes being interviewed by him, um, you know, but the rest of the time it was blaring music, and at night there was, a, you know, it, there was always a party going on in and around the veranda and the deck of the hotel, and it was, uh, it was a, the, a complete another world. But if you wanted to get away from that, you could because it's a nice island to walk around. Once you get off of the main drag there, which probably takes, I don't know, two minutes to walk to the edge of town, there's these lovely clapboard houses. The, uh, the hedgerows are awash with summer flowers. And then right after that, next thing you know, you're in a, in a, in a pine forest. And it takes about an hour to walk around the island. And it's really very peaceful and very pleasant there. Um, so you've got a bit of everything there in Sandham, I think. Yeah, we, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I went for a walk, oh, like you, around midnight and took a picture with my camera at midnight, and it never got dark. It's just always this midnight, not really sun, but just 
just this this light even at midnight yeah. which i thought was like a twilight it's a yeah. gorgeous twilight isn't it mm-hmm. and then we had a, actually a fairly adventurous day the next day and we sailed north and we tried to hop in a couple different harbors and the wind and the weather was acting up on us yes that's right the island that you're talking about is called moja m-o-j-a and um we'd again i learned i learned many lessons from you during that trip and you know you know one of them which is the most important one is that you have to be flexible because we had one weather system forecast and so we decided that we were going to go in the southeast uh, there were two small little harbors there but by the time we'd got there the wind had changed and there was a swell and really at that point we should have just moved on but um I guess uh, I was feeling a little overconfident, I don't know, but we decided to go into two little harbours there, and it was really pretty challenging for my skills to be able to get the boat to turn around, because there were a lot of local boats in there. That were, just to add to the misery, there was a ferry that came in and, and doubled the swell, as you'll recall, to unload some passengers there. So it was probably a quite nerve-wracking, I would say, 45 minutes between the two tr- little harbours that we tried to get in, neither of which had any space and so we had to turn the boat around in difficult challenging conditions and get out again and it wasn't until we cleared the north end of the island until we were really in the lee of the island um that that of course the conditions changed and it was absolutely wonderful and we ended up mooring just outside the town of langvik um in a little um public dock there what they call an allmansbrigger and mm-hmm. we spent just a very peaceful night there again right and we uh, we actually ran into some other boats that had seen us poke our nose in those little harbors and said we looked at that and we decided we didn't want to go in there and you know i was with you and i thought wow there's no way my boat could have turned around in the tight conditions that you were able to swing your boat around in that was the advantage of uh, of having a a relatively shallow shallow draft boat you had i think when we went in there we had the centerboard up correct that's correct able to uh you were able to spin around but the problem with that is also the boat blows across the water fairly quickly because you don't have the, the keel to keep you from going sideways. So it's sort of a blessing and curse, I guess, is the way I looked at it. But you were able to get in and <laughs> white-knuckle it in and out a couple times, and I thought, wow, this is pretty tough. This is I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have taken my boat in there because it just didn't give me enough maneuverability. But a full-keel boat is a totally different animal than you were able to to dance around with your boat in there. So I, I was very impressed with uh, your helmsmanship in those situations. I thought you did a great job there. Well, you're very kind. It was, it was very scary. Um, but, uh, you know, you set your, you, whether you intend to or not, you sometimes have cha- challenging tasks that you have to overcome. Um, and when I was first on the boat with Andy and we'd gone up the end shopping canal, um, I mean, that's a beautiful, quiet, calm, peaceful little place. But he uses the boat has severe prop walk um, and it you know really um, goes over to to port and he used it very expertly to turn the boat or spin the boat around on its own axis and he said you know don't be afraid to do this you know it's it's a little counterintuitive giving it some thrust right in the middle of a busy anchorage he said but it's the most effective way to turn the boat around quickly so it took a while for me to get used to it but by the end i felt i was able to use that prop walk to my advantage i mean it's if you want to go in a straight line it's frustrating but if you need to turn it can actually come in quite handy all right and from there it was a long day the next day to one more anchorage before before i flew out 
and that was to Langvik. And that was sort of, uh, as I recall, we, we went down there, and it was uh, another one of this, now the Swedish Yacht Club, the Swedish Cruising Association, is that right? Yes. The and you're a member of that, right? You're a member of that. Yes, that's correct. The abbreviation is SKK, and I'm not going to butcher it. People feel free to look it up on the web. But it's there are two dominant organizations in Swedish yachting, yachting circles. One is the Royal Swedish Yacht Club, and the other is the Swedish Cruising Association, um, Svenska something something. They have a magazine called Parkris, um, but they have several harbors, guest harbors, gasthams around. And in other places, they have put mooring balls and various other things. So they, you know, you get a fair amount of amenities for your membership. And I joined as an overseas member and I got a decal for my boat. Um, And we were not even expecting there to be a marina there because it wasn't listed in the pilot guide. We'd seen from the map that it was a gorgeous little um, inlet going very, very uh, a long way down. Um, uh, and it's on the island of Varmdorn, and it's at the northeast corner, and it's actually called Lochness Viken. So there's that word Viken again. But we'd seen that it was looked very, very sheltered, and we thought, well, okay, let's give it a try. It's a right distance from us from Stockholm. It's sort of equidistant from where we'd been the night before in Moja or Moja. Um, and it wasn't until we popped our nose in there and turned round sort of the dog leg to the left that we saw that there was a marina and we saw some masts. And when I say a marina, it's basically a jetty um, and some mooring balls. But there were probably two dozen masts there. And we thought, you know, this will be a really nice spot to stop. So we went down to the bottom again and it was beautifully calm. There were no crosswinds. There was no tide. There was no swell. It was just a piece of cake to just let the boat drift in into that anchorage, pick up the mooring line on the buoy at the back, which is what we do in so many of those harbors there, and then just to secure off to the um to the to the jetty. So it was a again, it was a piece of cake compared to what we'd done what we tried to do the night before in Moya. So it was a it was a nice contrast there. So we got back to Stockholm and I left the next day. It was a great trip. And then your family arrived and I'm kinda curious to hear how how it worked out with the family. Well I have two um teenage children i have a 16 year old boy i beg your pardon i have an 18 year old boy and a 16 year old girl and like most american teenagers they're very attached to their iphones and their friends and snapchat and all that kind of stuff and i was determined not to let them um bogart off my signal because i i didn't want to say (laughs) i didn't want to have to run out of, of data when i'm putting my paper together in the middle of nowhere that would have been very unpleasant but also more to the point i wanted them to you know, stop looking at the screen and start looking at the world around them. And neither of them are particularly enthusiastic about sailing. I can never get them to come out with me down here in Southern California, but they did have a good time when we were in Croatia when they were younger 10 years ago. Um, But, you know, plus teenage girls, they like their own space, you know, and there's the bathroom issues and all those kind of things. But when they were little, they camped a lot. And to their credit, they were really very adaptable. And also, my son loves Sweden. I think he thinks it's his his favorite place in the world. He just does love the topography. And the weather was really good. We were really blessed with good weather. So they were able to strip down to their swimsuits every day and suntan. And my daughter was pretty interested in driving the boat um, and, and trimming the sails and easing the sails. She was interested in that. My son really wasn't so much. 
But as long as there was plenty of food on the boat, which is my son's a teenage boy, so that was important. And I was cooking for him every night. So he was happy with that. Um, and then when we were staying in um, in marinas, which we did, uh, they were on the boat for eight days. And we were in marinas seven days out of the eight. So they always knew there'd be Wi-Fi at the end of the rainbow, so to speak, when we pulled in. Um, and we visited the same places that I'd visited before because I didn't want them to have any unpleasant or adventurous experiences. So we went to Dalaro, we went to Sma Dalaro, we went to Sandham. Um, but really the best aspect of what we did, which really turned out again to the, the joys of serendipity, which is, I've spoken about this before on your podcast, you know, you trust to fate and sometimes you'll be rewarded. Um, was we stayed at a place just off of Orno called um, Fjardling. The island, I'm just looking it up right now, is called, yeah, Fjardling, F-J-A-R-D-L-A-N-G. It's at the southern and towards the southern side of the archipelago, not far from Orno. And um, again, the place, the, 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 the inlet is called Morviken. And we pulled in there just to have a look. We planned to go to Kirkviken in Orno, but I just pulled in because I'd read wonderful things about this place. And this was probably the nicest nature harbour that I went to during the whole, my whole 10 weeks over there. It extends about a mile and a half deep into the island. There's two big dog legs. So by the time you get to the end of it, it's just like a lake. You wouldn't believe that it was attached to you know, the Baltic Sea in any way, shape or form. Um, the water is clear. It's warm. There's a couple of um, outhouses on either side for your ablutions and everything else is thickly forested with fir trees and pine trees and birch trees. So we pulled up bows too, we dropped our stern anchor, we secured our, our, our ourselves for the night and um, we just, I was able actually to produce the paper from there with, with two bars on my cell phone and we had such a good time on the Saturday night that I just said to the kids, you know, we're not, we're not leaving tomorrow to go to a marina. We're going to spend another night here. This is so good. And they just spent the, t the time swimming in the water, sunbathing. Um, I bought a hammock for the boat, which I secured between the mast and the main, um, the forestay. And they spent, t they just took turns lounging in that and reading, catching up with their summer high school reading. And we just had an absolutely glorious time. And, uh, you know, it was one of those places where as long as you've got food in the galley, and water in your tanks, you could quite easily stay there for a week if you wanted to. It was just bliss. Now, Neil, your wife was with you? Yeah, she was with me. And so she, she, did she enjoy it? Yes, she did. And she was the most interested in learning how to steer the boat, um, how, to, how to trim the sails. Um, and, um, you know, she's a very organized person, so she was very good at finding hidey holes and places to store all of my children's many things. It's an ongoing battle between um, my wife and I that uh, I always have less stuff and she always has more stuff, but then she's always thinking of the children. But um, fortunately, boats being what they are, there's always it can, th those boats can swallow an awful lot of stuff, and she found lots of places to put stuff away, although there was an initial... Adjustment for me because hey honey, what did you do with the dishwashing liquid? That doesn't live there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was pretty harmonious, really, no complaints. So now I'm looking now this this last anchorage you went to is that on the island of Orno? It's across. It's on the island of Fjordling. So if you're or Fjordling. Okay. So if you're at Orno, if you're looking at it um, on, um, I'm looking at Google Earth, right. It would be to the 
sort of southeast. Okay. See. All right. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll I'll get it from you later on. No point in holding on the uh, the listeners for that. But I'm kind of curious to see exactly where you're at. But that was great. So they were with you for a week after that, and then did you come home or did you have somebody else join after that? No, what I did was that was that my family were the last group there. Um, so then we headed back to Stockholm and we, I left the boat at Vassahamnen Marina again. And we went to visit our friends who live in a town called Rimbo, which is about uh, 45 minutes north of Stockholm. And I spent three or four days just relaxing at their house, um, catching up on a little bit of work. They have a lovely Swedish country house on a lake. So it was, you know, just and the, the, the husband and the wife we get on famously with. And he's got a wonderful wine cellar and the wife's a good cook. So it, there's plenty of uh, to, to, to lure me, you know, to lure me there. So but now, so I just left the boat in Vassahamnen for four days. And then the plan originally was that I was going to sail with my son up to a town called Odergrund, which is about a three-day sail from Stockholm. Uh, and that was where I was going to winter the boat over winter because I could do it very cheaply there, less than, I think, less around $1,000 for the year, which was just a sensational. It's a great price. But unfortunately, my son got sick. Um, and by the time he was starting to feel better, we, we were sort of a little more pressed for time. So instead, I found another facility which was closer to Stockholm. And because it was closer, it was more expensive. Um, and it was called Ramsmora Marina on the island of Lustero, which is spelt L-J-U-S-T-E-R-O. And so I ended up motoring up to Lustero on my own. My son still didn't really feel up to um, up to the challenge. He wanted to stay uh, at a friend's house. So I just took the boat up to Lustero on my own. It took me about half a day. Um, and then I spent uh, the afternoon um, taking the rigging down, taking lots of pictures <laughs> or disconnecting, I should say. And then the next day, the both masts came off. Um, we took the mar- we took the rigging off the masts, stored everything away, and then the boat was lifted out and uh, put at the end of their parking lot with all the other boats. And then I just spent uh, probably another day winterizing the engine, uh, winterizing the water tanks and the head, and uh, putting the cover back on the frame and the cover and uh, preparing her for winter. And that's where she sits now, uh, patiently waiting out the Swedish winter for next summer. All right. So you're in a very, very cold climate in the winter. So you have to do a lot more than I do when I put my boat up. I basically just pull the boat out of the water and, and uh, drain the water tanks, and that's about it. So what did you have to do to prepare the engine? Do you recall off the top of your head? Well, the the manual recommends that you change the oil, change the oil filter, uh, and change the transmission fluid. But um, yeah, the standard so, maintenance on a boat. But that's right. That's standard. Not, okay. But then, as far as the the um, the cooling system is concerned, what you do is you disconnect. You, well, first, let me back up. You take a fifty fifty mixture of antifreeze and water, and you put it in a bucket. Then you disconnect the through hole that you use for the cooling system, the one that runs to the heat exchanger to cool down the coolant. And you take that hose. And now, of course, you're on the hard. So even if you turn the engine on, there isn't going to be any water running through it because it's got no it's got nothing to intake. You take that hose and you put it into the bucket. Then you turn your engine on and what happens is is that 50-50 mixture will now run through all the pipes and through all the, the cooling system. So now you're winterized. I mean, you make sure that you don't 
you know, once it starts, once the, the bucket has been sucked close to being close, sucked dry, when there's maybe just a half an inch left, that's when it, it you know, it, that's when you turn the engine off. And of course, at that point, there will be a green mixture coming out the other end too. You want to make sure it's coming out the other end too. So you've got rid of all the existing water in the system. But if you use a full bucket's worth, you'll be fine. Okay. So that's, that's the most important part of it. Um, you drain the water tanks and then you put, again, maybe a bucket's worth of mixture, a 50-50 mixture. And, of course, they have the, I believe it's the glycoethylene, which is considered um, eco ecologically harmless. Right? Oh, that so, one. Okay. All right. Yeah, you, you, don't, you don't want to drink that stuff. You want to make sure when you fill it in the summer that you perhaps empty and fill and fill and empty your tanks two or three times until you get rid of that stuff. Uh, and then you do the same thing for the head. You take the through hole for the head and you take that uh, that hose off and you just pump uh, pump it through with uh, with a 50-50 mixture as well. So if you do that to your three systems, I mean, other people may have more complicated systems and more, more tanks to take care of, but that's all I had on Arcturus. So those were the three things I did. And then, of course, just dis disconnected the propane, disconnected the electrical system, um, stored everything down below, and... Um, you know, fingers crossed, we'll be ready to go for next year. All right. That's great. That's great. Now, let me ask you a question on finances. How much did it cost you to put the boat on the hard for? I guess it's going to be, what, about 10 months then, right? Yeah. Well, what they do is they charge you for various ancillary services. So they charge you for picking the boat up now and dropping it in the water in the summer. You can pay that later if you wanted to, but I just elected to pay for everything at once. And I also used their, the services of their yard manager, a wonderful gentleman by the name of Daniel, who really helped me with the, 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 the mast. I mean, he operated the – they had someone else actually operating the crane, but they lifted him up in a bosun's chair, first of all, to secure the rope uh, to the mast so that it was securely – you know, and he is securely fastened. And he looked over – all the fastenings as I was loosening them just to give, just to make sure that we didn't have any nasty accidents. Now, you know, I, t I could take the, the mizzen mast off myself because that's not a big hefty thing, but the main mast is in that different kettle of fish. And uh, if you don't do that properly, that can come down and brain you and damage the boat and everything else. So he gave me an hour of his time, which I spent, I think that cost me a hundred dollars. And we also put some, we also filled the fuel tanks up there. So I paid for everything altogether just over two thousand dollars so um and the storage component of that was probably about sixteen hundred dollars the rest was just the extra ancillary services so it probably the storage part ended up about 50 percent more um than i would have paid had i gone up to oregon as we discussed but um you you know for someone who's not as experienced with me this is the first time i've done it i don't want to be pound wise and penny foolish and cut corners and then end up with a much more expensive bill so I don't consider for the for the nine or ten months it's going to be there. I don't consider that two thousand dollars to be ruinously expensive. I, it, I'm perfectly happy with it. Sounds pretty reasonable to me. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right, Neil. Thanks a lot. I'm going to put a link to your blog on the website if that's okay with you. And you know, you never mentioned the newspaper you put out. Do you want to mention that? Um, the newspaper is called the British Weekly. Okay. People can find that if they want. And again, my blog which has lots of maps um, and various other details, so hopefully people will find some interest in that, is um, www.sailingarcturus. So sailing, everyone knows how to spell that, and Arcturus is A-R-C, 
T-U-R-U-S, sailingarctourist.com. And if anyone wants to get in contact with me, any questions, I'm happy to answer them as best I can. Um, and that is Neil Fletcher, N-E-I-L-F-L-E-T-C-H-E-R, the number one at Mac.com. And um, just as a postscript, Franz, I had originally planned to go through the Yotta Canal to the west coast of Sweden next year uh, as to begin my journey down south to end up in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. But I had such a fantastic time in the archipelago, and I still only feel that I've sort of dipped my toe in the water, that I'm keeping the boat in the archipelago next summer as well, and I anticipate going over to Finland as well. Um, so there's lots more adventures to come, I hope. Oh, that's great. That's great. So you're not roller skating through the Louvre then? No, that's not my style. I think you've taught me to slow down, and for that, I thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, watch go into iTunes and, and write a review and give it a rating. I'd really appreciate it. Also, I'm thinking of changing the name of the podcast from Sailing in the Mediterranean to something else because I do cover a lot of other topics other than just sailing in the Mediterranean. I don't like to be limited uh, to just sailing in the Mediterranean. And I've reached out to a lot of people over the last few weeks about doing an interview, and I'm not getting much positive response from the people I'd like to talk to. Uh, so I'd like to not limit myself to the Mediterranean. So I may want to change the name of the podcast to something else like, like Andy Shell at 59 North did recently. If you have comments, drop me a note, franz1 at medsailor.com. I like hearing from my listeners. If you're ever sailing and you want somebody to sail with you, if I can, I'll come out and go sailing with you. I always look for opportunities to meet new people and go sailing. So thanks for listening. And get out there and go sailing. Joe, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joel. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joel. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? <laughs>